The purpose of this lesson, titled Political and Narrative Warfare, is to look to the mindsets behind influence strategies that we'll discuss in Lesson 5. First, on the readings. You're welcome to skim the LSE article. Hopefully, this article has been used in other courses, lessons, lectures, and events at NDU on Russian active measures, both past and present. I can say that you can skim it because I find this reading helpful as a reference when thinking about how to stem or collapse the Kremlin's active measures today. It's a publication I have on my desktop that I use as a reference. The other two readings are canon for influence education. They are crucial background material to understanding influence. Also, uh, they are two of the most influential texts for many of our competitors and adversaries. These texts influence the worldviews and some militaries uh, of some militaries and governments. Now, hopefully you've already read these texts or were introduced to them, especially these particular excerpts. Certainly, if you've attended any of my lessons or conferences this past summer, Catulia and Unrestricted Warfare, these excerpts that is, are required reading. We will have these readings again at least twice more this year. These excerpts, I believe, greatly reward rereading and rereading and re-reviewing at different points in your influence education this year and throughout your career. You'll find new and deeper value as you return to the text. You'll get more out of it each time. This is an important aspect of this course and this concentration to allow space and time for deep reflection, deep thought, to re-attack certain ideas in literature from different angles, with different learning outcomes, and having been exposed up to each point with different, to different literature and case studies. I challenge us especially to find similarities between the China and India texts on how warfare is defined, how ways and means are analyzed, and how instruments of power are analyzed. As a bit of background, some scholars see unrestricted warfare, especially this excerpt, as an updated and perhaps modern expansion on China's well-known Taikung's Six Secret Teachings from 11th century BCE. The theoretical concepts are not necessarily new and play into the educational art and perhaps uh, arc, excuse me, and perhaps personal narratives and worldviews of some civilians, some military officers, and some military NCOs in China. Now, for some definitions and context for the lesson. According to the Office of the Historian, Department of State, in a document published in 1948, political warfare is the logical application of Clausewitz doctrine in times of peace. In its broadest definition, political warfare is the employment of all the means at a nation's command, short of war, to achieve its national objectives. Such operations are both overt and covert. They range from such overt actions as political alliances, economic measures, and white propaganda, to such covert operations as clandestine support for friendly foreign elements, black psychological warfare, and even encouragement of underground resistance in hostile states. According to RAN, 2019, political warfare consists of the intentional use of one or more of the implements of power, diplomatic slash political, information slash cyber, military slash intelligence, and economic, to affect the political composition or decision-making in a state. As an example, the political warfare tactic of economic subversion can be seen in the overlap of the diplomatic and economic spheres. Political warfare is often, but not necessarily, carried out covertly, but it must be undertaken outside the context of conventional war. This idea that it must be carried out or should be or often is carried out covertly 
at the global strategic and regional level is almost impossible, extraordinarily rare, and certainly not advised. And we'll talk about that later. Now, a bit on Russia active measures subversion. Now, this will be a singular lesson in the spring semester, but it's worth an introduction now. The mindset of Russian active measures includes that the best defense against subversion is offensive subversive strategies against adversaries, competitors, and even allies. Governments of Russia have often sought geographic buffer to stave off foreign influence and also invasion. From the Mongol invasions to Napoleon to Hitler, Russian governments, or I should say governing forces that are in the region that is now called Russia, often appear to value survival as a moral and national imperative in and of itself. The goal of survival justifies an array of ways and means. Also, to survive, the Kremlin appears often to favor order over other priorities. A strong FSB, stronger than the SVR, and keeping citizens confused, were reminded of the chaos of the world outside of Russia, only to want a strong man savior, appears to be a road towards order from the perspective of some Kremlin in the Kremlin. Although Russia disinformation is played up in the media, the vast majority of influence, if we look at money, time, personnel, and effort, is offline. Some analysts suggest that online disinformation may sometimes be a purposeful distraction. It's, in other words, subterfuge. According to Mark Jaliotti, 2019, and I quote, the Kremlin has embraced a sense that Russia faces a Western campaign of subversion and that using active measures are the best and most logical response. Active measures make use of, a Russian, of Russian strength to exploit perceived Western weaknesses from its divisions to its commitment to free speech and open politics. Active measures are both an expression of Russia's strategic culture with its propensity to see the world as full of covert challenges and the operational code of the Putin regime, which considers the best defense against such threats to be good offense. Of course, this does not mean that every Russian individual or institution is necessarily involved in active measures. The crowning irony is that it has become very easy for foreigners to see the Kremlin's hand behind every reversal, every trip, and every Russian initiative. This likely suits Putin well, crediting him with more influence and impact in the world than he and his Russia truly deserve. Perhaps this is the greatest active measure of all. End quote. Now, very briefly to unrestricted political warfare, which will also be a lesson in the spring, but is worth a very brief introduction, and then we'll go more deeply into seminar on China. This translation is a misnomer. It does not mean all-out political warfare. Instead, it means using creative combinations of creative ways and means beyond the traditional dime frameworks in order to achieve a limited objective, but never to exceed said objective never to cause backlash, never to escalate tensions, a very difficult balance. In this lesson, we will look at the cross-sections of political warfare and narrative warfare, that is conflict or competition over narratives, identity, meaning purpose. In this case, because we're looking at political warfare outside major conventional battles, this is the final rung in our theoretical lessons before we do a deep dive into influence strategy. Many of you have been introduced to Diebel, Gaddis, Clausewitz, Jomini, Napoleon, Thucydides, perhaps Martin, uh, excuse me, uh, Lawrence Friedman, and other scholars and practitioners of strategy. They are at least 
they at least consider the hypothesis that war is actually politics by other means. So war is politics by other means. This is actually an extremely rare and unorthodox hypothesis. Most of the world, throughout most of history, to include Greek and Roman history, inversely have viewed politics as war by other means. Political warfare is the norm. That even military leaders should be steeped in what is today called political and or narrative warfare. We must understand that going back to 11th century BCE in China, as well as ancient widely read strategic literature in Japan, Vietnam, what is today India, what is today Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, the entirety of the Middle East, especially Egypt going back millennia, North Africa, the Sahel, and Latin America to include Mayan military strategy, political and narrative warfare and influence are the norm. They are the most conventional forms of competition and conflict, those activities that are short of the rarest form of warfare, known as conventional war. There's nothing more unorthodox, nothing less conventional than conventional war. It is the rarest of species when we see formal declarations of war on a specific date and time, armies against armies, navies against navies, ending in surrender, treaty, truce, or armistice on another specific date and time. Political and narrative warfare are the norm, they are the way, they are also defined simply as international politics. Today we see online radicalization, the Communist Party of China's unrestricted political warfare, and Kremlin's active measures subversions. This has been and is being taught even in mainstream military education in much of the world outside the United States. It is nothing new. It is not seventh generation warfare. So looking at a conflict or competition over narratives in the context of political warfare, I'd like us to consider the following. Political narrative and influence warfare can be dramatic in its endgame, the subverting and then eventual collapse of a civilization, for example. But it often takes the form of competing for minutes or even seconds of your day, of your limited energy, limited time being awake and aware, limited attention, and limited priorities. It can be the edges of your attention that an influence campaign can win out. I also want to discuss the issue of trust. Some would argue that the reality, this is not everybody, but the reality of the United States and influence campaigns in much of the world is that we, the United States, are not set up to build trust in swaths of the populations of the world at the individual and even sometimes agency level due to rotations of organizations like the U.S. military, USAID, state, Department of Ag, and others. Unless we were able to spend years and even decades to create and build deeply personal and earn trust, we are not in a place where we are always trusted actors and trusted agents. Trust cannot be surged. Now, there are exceptions. ODA teams rotating in and out of the same regions of Colombia for years, in some cases decades. You developing relationships and true friendships with our extremely important international fellows. That this can be this event, this time at NDU can be a platform and starting point to develop a career and perhaps, perhaps lifelong relationship built off trust that you can gain through challenges and work here at NDU and then going forward. But most often we do not have the time or ability to become individually 
or as part of an interagency team to develop deeply earned trust. So the influence game has, has been described and will be described in future lessons is often, not always, but often about leveraging networks who themselves will use their narratives to influence. Thank you.